to the Love Your Story podcast. In the professional story world, there are a handful of thought leaders who stand out. It's a pretty small world, those who understand story enough to teach others how to use it effectively. And guess what? Today's guest is one of the world's leading experts in business storytelling, but he also branches into personal storytelling. So we're going to pull both of those in in today's conversation. He's one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers of 2018. He's a storytelling coach and the best-selling author of the books, Sell with a Story, Parenting with a Story, and Lead with a Story. As part of his research on the effectiveness of storytelling, Paul has personally interviewed over 250 CEOs, executives, leaders, and salespeople in 25 countries, documenting over 2,000 individual stories. He's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Inc. Magazine, Time, Forbes, The Washington Post, Success Magazine, the list goes on. There are three more pages of accomplishments that I could read off here, but let's just get to his story, shall we? Stay tuned. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Paul Smith, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Hey, Lori, thank you so much. It's good to be here. So I first became aware of you through your books. I have your book in front of me right now, Lead with a Story. And to be honest, I have used it. I have stolen many things out of your book <laughs> for my, for my <laughs> workshops fabulous. and discussions with professionals. Used a lot of your stories. I share them and I love your ideas. So when I found you on LinkedIn, I believe it was, I thought, absolutely. Could we talk with Paul? And you were so good to get back to me and set this up. So yay, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Well, thank you very much. And there, there's no greater compliment that an author can get than somebody saying, I'm, I'm using what's in your book. So that's exactly what it's there for. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. Thank you for that carte blanche to steal. <laughs> yes. I, I do give you credit. No, thank you. So I want to start with one just great big open question, which is why storytelling? Yeah, because it certainly wasn't uh, the focus of my life until relatively recently, six or seven years ago. It actually probably goes back to 2009. But I guess at some point in my business career, and I had a very typical corporate career, you know, studied business in undergrad, got an MBA, spent 20 years at Procter & Gamble. Somewhere in the middle of that, I I realized that storytelling was an important skill set to have if I wanted to be an effective leader. And and that that bothered me because nobody had ever taught me that. Like I said, I I was well-educated in business and economics and and things like that. And there was never a single class on storytelling. And I I came to Procter & Gamble. I I worked at Arthur Anderson for for a while with Accenture Consulting. And None of those places did they teach me anything about storytelling. And so I just became fascinated with the concept of this thing that clearly was important just by watching the leaders I admired and wanted to work for and grow up and be like. And the company had this skill of being able to tell these really compelling, inspiring stories. And I didn't know how to do that. 
I think it's fascinating that you bring that up because I also have a master's degree in even in folklore and all my research is around the personal narrative. So I've studied specifically and still, even with that kind of focused education there, I have never had a class that was specifically on how and why to use story and the power of it. And you and I in particular understanding and knowing how that genre is so incredibly powerful. It is fascinating. It's like there aren't classes that teach you how to listen when it's such an important part of communication. <laughs> yeah. And story being such an important part of communication, but you know, of business, of being able to communicate accurately in your personal and business life and knowing how to do it. Why wouldn't there be more classes? That's a great point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, there is now. So, <laughs> so it, it seems to be working. <laughs> so what is your story? Where do you come from that you decided I'm going to actually create a space for this? So, well, that's the beginning of it. The interest came from my recognizing that it was an important skill set to have and admitting that I didn't know anything about it and my disappointment that nobody had ever taught me that. So that was the, the beginning. What, what that led me to do was to go interview those hundreds of CEOs and executives and leaders that you mentioned earlier. And some point along the way, it, it stopped just being my own personal learning journey when I, I realized, gosh, if I want to know this that badly, surely other people do as well. So it stopped just being my own learning journey and it started becoming an idea for a book. And so all those interviews and stories and what I learned from that process is what became the content of my first book. And I did it rather intentionally. I mean, I I knew that I wanted a career like the one that I have now where I'm a speaker and trainer and because those are the days that I loved on my job. Uh, you know, the four or five, six days a year that I got to you know, give the speech at the annual company meeting or teach the you know, newly promoted general managers how to lead better or the new hires how to do their job. I liked being a teacher, essentially. But I recognized that people, the only people that get to do that full time are the people who've got some best selling book out there and get to go company to company teaching people what's in the book. And so I said, well, I guess I need to write a book. So there was a more practical, intentional part of that journey. And I guess I hit on a topic that was ripe for being talked about because there was a lot of interest in that first book. And within a year of it coming out, I ended up leaving P&G and, and doing this full time. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Congratulations. I love that you created the life that you wanted. Yeah, thank you. I, I didn't know if it would work. I'd love to be able to tell you a more romantic story about, yeah, I woke up one morning and had this idea and I walked into my boss's office and I quit. And then I started writing this book and had no idea if it would work. And But I'm admittedly more risk averse than that. I, I wrote the book nights and weekends while I still had my day job. And so I went about it a little bit more conservatively than, than I would like to tell you I did. But uh, a wife and two kids at home to you know, put through college and stuff, I, uh, I thought that was a smarter way to go. And it, it worked out because if it hadn't have worked out, I would have perhaps made a hasty decision. I actually think that it's a pretty romantic story the way that it is, because to seek knowledge, to want something, I mean, there you are, the hero of the story, wanting to seek after this knowledge going out on that quest. And then Mm -hmm. as you accumulated it, creating basically the elixir for everyone else. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. a pretty romantic story. You got it going on, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Okay. So one of the most powerful things that you you do. You teach business, but you also teach personal storytelling with the parenting with story. Tell me a little mm-hmm. bit about how you differentiate between the personal story approach that you take and the business story approach. 
so the whole idea for the parenting with a storybook came during the writing of the lead with a storybook. And it came because every time I would, I'd interview a new leader, I'd pick the story out of the dozen or so they told me that I really thought was great and wanted to feature in the book. I'd write up a draft of it. I'd send it to them, say, hey, you know, that I'd get this right. And one of the most frequent pieces of feedback I got from them was, wow, you know, I, I, I could really use that story at home with my kids now that I think about it. And it slowly dawned on me that leading people at work and raising kids at home, there's a, a lot of similarities there, right? And in both cases, you're the boss in a sense. In both cases, you're responsible for the kind of the care and the feeding and the growth and development of the person, the child or the employee. In both cases, you have to tell them when they're doing things right and tell them when they're doing it wrong. <laughs> I realized there's a big similarity here. And I thought, if so many people are telling me that these leadership stories, they think they could use them at home to help develop the right character traits for their kids at home, maybe I should write a book just for that purpose. And that's where that idea came from. And I, I think it's a valid one. Absolutely. What's your response been to the two books? Equally as accepting? One of them definitely sells more than the other. So the lead with the story book definitely outsells the parenting with the story book. I personally have more affinity for the second one, though, just because oh. I think it's a, a book that makes the world a better place, even more so than a business book. But the type of stories, though, the how to craft these stories is essentially the same. I mean, you've got the same context and challenge and conflict and resolution and same techniques to create emotional engagement and same way to create a surprise ending. So the mechanics of storytelling, whether it's at work or at home, are the same. The stories you tell are very different, though. So, I mean, can I give you an example? Please do. One of the examples in the parenting of the storybook is actually a story about me and my father. When I was 17 years old, he helped me get a job at the company where he worked to you know, earn money. And um, eventually, and I literally was on the janitorial crew for a year or so, and eventually I, quote, worked my way up to an office job. And it really wasn't a higher level job, but it was, just, it was a cleaner job, which I, I liked at the time. So I was literally a file clerk. And I was so excited when I found out that one day a year, I mean, it was a day that we called at the time Secretary's Day, which I think they probably call Administrative Professionals Day today. But anyway, that one day a year, I found out the, my boss had to take me out to lunch. <laughs> I just thought that was so cool because I got to go out to lunch with all these bosses and all the secretaries or administrators at the time. And I was one of the administrators. I just felt like such a grown up, you know, at 17 years old being in this, this scene. So they rented out this uh, one restaurant because this company I worked for, we all went to the same place for lunch, all the bosses and all the secretaries. And I happened to get seated at a table with my dad and my dad and his secretary. And I was there with my boss. And this is back, and I don't know how old you are, but I'll throw this out there. This was back around in 1984, just a year or two after this book came out called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. For anybody around my age, you know that book well, even if you've never read it. It, it was an absolutely number one New York Times bestselling book. It was a tongue-in-cheek look at the feminization of the American male. So it's basically, it was a humorous look at, at that. But just based on the title, you know that what happened in society around that time was that no man wanted to eat quiche at that point because it was just so you know, stigmatized by the title of that book. Well, anyway, we get to this restaurant. They tell us there's two items on the menu today that you can choose from. One is a club sandwich and the other is a quiche Lorraine, right? So, of course, you know, the waitresses are coming around taking orders and none of the men are ordering the quiche. And, and you know, some of the women are. <laughs> And it gets around to me. And of course, I'm 17 years old and insecure enough in my masculinity as it is. And so, of course, I very quickly order the club sandwich. And well, it gets around to my dad. And he says, you know, I've never had a quiche before. 
So how about you bring me half a club sandwich and half a quiche? That way, if I don't like the quiche, I got my club sandwich. Well, the abuse started immediately. All the men at the table just started just denigrating my father, challenging his masculinity in words that are probably not safe for a family-friendly program that we've got here. But you can imagine the kind of things that they would have said to him uh, to insult him because of his choice of what to have for lunch. Well, this abuse went on for three or four minutes. And of course, I don't know how my dad was internalizing it, but I was mortified, right? I mean, probably more so than if they were making fun of me. These, these guys are just dressing down my dad right in front of me, and I'm just sinking down lower into the chair, you know, just horrified. Well, eventually he's had enough and he calls the waitress back over and I'm just, oh, you know, thank God, <laughs> this, this you know, nightmare is going to end. And he says, I'm sorry, I need to change my order. I, I'm the one that ordered that half a club sandwich and half a quiche. I need you to take back that half a club sandwich and I need you to bring me the whole quiche. <laughs> and I mean, the jaws at the table just dropped, you know, because they were already high five in each other because they had like, they'd broken his will, you know, and, uh-huh. um, you know, and in the first few seconds, I was even more mortified. But then, you know, less than a minute later, it sunk into me. What brilliant thing just happened in front of me? You know, my dad, without intending it, had taught me a lesson about what it really means to be a man or an adult. And that right. is that you just don't care so much what other people think of you. And if you want to eat a quiche, by God, eat the quiche. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I, just, I could, like your dad already. Just oh, yeah. Story, I like him. My respect for him just went up, you know, so many notches right there. And he didn't even mean to do that, but it worked. And anyway, so I now share that story with my kids when they are faced with some kind of peer pressure at school or get trying to basically getting bullied into doing something they don't want to do. You know, I tell them that story and it teaches them, oh, you know, it gives them a clever response strategy. So, for example, if the kids at school are making fun of my boy for wearing his pants up too high, you know, like it's popular mm-hmm. to wear them kind of hanging off the waist and your underwear showing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't want to do that, but either pressuring him to do it instead of just capitulating and instead of arguing about it or getting in a fight over it, he can just do it more <laughs> like he can eat the quiche. So, that, mm-hmm. so that's what we say now. So he would pull his pants up even higher instead of pulling them down lower. And then, of course, that would just confuse his tormentors. Like, what are you doing? We're, we're telling you they should be lower. You know? and, and he could pull them up even higher. And now he's looking like Urkel, right? Walking around with a way <laughs> to his chest. Like, eventually, they're just going to get frustrated and walk away because their teasing and tormenting is not working. So anyway, that's the kind of story that I'm talking about and how it can have a practical use in your child's life. Well, and powerful, particularly because it is so powerful to give your children roots. So when you're sharing your story or stories of like this is with your father, there's something to be proud of. And then you're building on where they come from and examples. And so really on multiple levels, you're providing something Mm -hmm. very powerful for them. I love that. Yeah. Now, of course, all the stories you tell can't be about yourself or about your parents. You're just you're just not going to have enough stories. And that was the idea behind the book is, you know, all of us, you, me, everybody, we have two or three or four really great stories like that that are worthy of passing along to the next generation. But we don't have 100 or 200. Right. Mm -hmm. So the idea was interview 100 people, you know, get one story from each of them that's like their best life learning lesson story Mm. and put those between two covers so that, you know, on any topic that you can imagine wanting to teach your kid, whether it's that kind of fortitude or self-confidence or integrity or kindness or fairness or whatever character trait you might imagine. There's 23 character traits featured in the book and there's a handful of stories for each one to kind of teach that lesson to your kids. 
I love that. Now I'm wishing my kids were younger again. They're, they're both in college, but I'm, well, I'm going to go get your book. What a great set of tools to have in your toolbox for parenting. Mm-hmm. I was trying to tell my son a story the other day. He was asking a lot of questions and I had this memory pop up from another story, but I totally butchered it. Like, I don't even think I got the moral of the story right. I'm just <laughs> sitting there after I told him, I'm like, oh, that was so bad that I, I think I just led him astray with that. And I was wishing, as we're talking about it now, it makes me think what a wonderful idea to actually have that reference source and have a few stories on hand for when the opportunity arises. Yeah, but let me suggest that your kids aren't too old. And here's why I know that, because the stories in the book are about people from as young as five years of age to as old as 93. And the ages of the children, when those people told their stories to them, ranged from about five to at least the age of 45. So in fact, the last story in the book is a story my father told me when he was 80 and I was 45 and it absolutely changed my life. And it is the reason why I do what I do today. So you are never too old to help your children by telling them an inspiring story. You know what? I will stand corrected on that because you're right. We're always learning. I'm always learning. If someone can tell me a beautiful story and I'm in my mid forties, then, you know, that helps me to gain an insight or a clarity on something. I'm grateful and always open to that. So exactly, all of your books are available on Amazon. I'll have links to them in the show notes, but where can people go if they want to pick up a copy also? Yeah, Amazon is probably the the best place or my website. They can get links to all of them there, which is uh, leadwithastory.com. Great. Starting June 1st, the Love Your Story podcast will transition into a bi-weekly show for the summer. New episodes will come out every other Wednesday at the regular time, rather than every Wednesday, as we prepare for a dynamic fall season. Thanks for tuning in for each value-packed episode. Share the love. Now, back to the show. So how do you teach business people to use their stories? One of the main approaches that works for you. The one thing I do is well, storytelling is an art, obviously, as you know, and it's hard to teach art. Business people need something more concrete than that. So I don't want to suggest that I turn storytelling into a science. There's certainly some science behind why it works and the cognitive science behind why it's, it's effective in human communication and influence. But what I do try and do is turn it into at least something that has a process. So I give them, here are the eight questions that your story needs to answer and the order in which it needs to answer them, as opposed to saying, well, you need a context and a challenge and a conflict and a resolution, and you've got to have this story arc that, I mean, that's all nice and well and good, and it's all true. But most business leaders just, they don't know what to do with that. They need Mm -hmm. something more prescriptive. So I say, so I can accomplish all that that I just said to you <laughs> that sounded very flowery by saying your story needs to answer these eight questions. So here they are. First, why should I bother listening to your story? Right? You've got to answer that question first in the first 15 seconds or they might not listen to your story. Now, once you've answered that question, I call that the hook. What's the hook at the beginning to get them interested in listening to the rest of the story? Then you've got to answer these five questions. Where and when did it take place? Who's the main character and what did they want? What was the problem or opportunity they ran into? What did they do about it? And how did it turn out in the end? Right? Those five questions are the basic logical flow of a story. 
but there's still two more if you're keeping track. And that's after you've kind of resolved the story, then you need to have the conversation about what did you learn from that story? And what do you think I should go do now that now that I've heard your story, what it's your opportunity to kind of make a recommendation. So when I lay out questions like that, it's just easier for them to go, oh, okay, I can build a story around that structure because it's simple and it, it makes sense. Anybody knows how to answer eight questions, whereas not everybody knows how to create a story arc and a, you know, a context sure. and a challenge. I try and make it simple like that. And then for things like the emotional engagement and creating a surprise ending, I just create simple techniques that they can kind of, well, follow these three steps and you will have created a better emotional engagement or follow these, here are three techniques to create a surprise and a story. So just trying to make it simple and easy and following a, a pattern as opposed to talking in Hollywood language or theatrical language or something that, that would appeal more to somebody in an arts program at a university. So why do you tell people and teach business people that they need to use story? I typically cover that at the very beginning of my workshops, and there's probably a dozen reasons I talk about. But the most important ones, probably the most important one, is that it helps people make decisions. It turns out human beings don't make the logical, rational decisions that we like to think we do. Now, it turns out, and we've learned this from the cognitive you know, science research that's been done in the last couple of decades, that a lot of human decisions are made in a subconscious, emotional processing part of the brain. And then we rationalize and justify those decisions a few nanoseconds later in a conscious thinking, logical processing part of the brain. So we leave a decision thinking that we've made it for these logical, rational reasons, because that's what the conscious part of our brain has, has told us. But the truth is, we made the decision a few nanoseconds earlier for some more subconscious emotional reasons. So if you want to influence what people think and feel and do, in other words, leadership, it turns out you need to talk to both parts of the brain. And facts and data and logic and, and arguments are not very good at speaking to both parts of the brain. They only speak to one part of the brain, but stories reach both of them. So that, that's probably the, the biggest reason. It's just that it's more effective at helping people change their mind, make a decision, behave differently, motivate themselves, you know, whatever. It's just a more effective way of leading. Really well said. Can you tell me about your three books? What's the difference between them and maybe a favorite story from each? So the first one, Lead with a Story. Well, one of my favorite ones there is uh, about a colleague of mine named Jason Zoller. He's the vice president of consumer research at a big consumer products company today. But 20 some odd years ago, he was a senior at the University of Central Florida and he was studying communications. And one of his favorite professors told the class a story so compelling that he's been telling the story over and over again every year to his new hires. And basically what happened was the professor broke the students up into groups of four or five or six. And then each of them had a research project. Or each team had a research project for the semester. And one of them had a more interesting project than all the others. And it was this. How can you improve the jury deliberation process? So literally their job for the semester was working for the local judge to find out how they could improve the jury deliberation process. And so they did all the kind of things that you probably would have done if you'd been on this team. They interviewed all the other judges in the jurisdiction. They interviewed prosecuting attorneys and defense attorneys, but mostly they interviewed former jurists, people who served on juries themselves. And they asked them all the same kind of questions that you probably would have asked. Well, what was the trial about? And how long was it, did the trial last? And what were the instructions given to them? And they even asked them questions like, like, what kind of food did they feed you? And, and how late did they make you work in the evening? Like everything they could think of. It turned out at the end of the semester that none of those things mattered. It turns out the only thing that mattered was the shape of the table in, or rectangular tables. Whoever sat at the head of the table, even if they weren't the jury foreman, tended to dominate the conversation. And they felt like a, a less than fair and egalitarian debate of the facts ensued. And so therefore, maybe a less than fair and accurate verdict was rendered. 
But in jury rooms that had round tables, they felt like a more fair debate ensued and therefore probably a, a more fair and accurate verdict was rendered. Anyway, they're very excited at the end of the semester to make this recommendation to the head judge. And they make the recommendation and the head judge is, is very excited for exactly the same two reasons, you know, that they thought it's definitely this is the thing that's going to work and it's super easy to fix, right? Just buy a new table. So anyway, the judge immediately issues a decree in all the courthouses in my jurisdiction, anywhere you've got any of those round tables, get rid of them. <laughs> all right. Think about that. And I did not just misspeak. Anywhere we got round tables, get rid of them and put in rectangular ones. Why do you think he would have done that? So that they could get through the process faster? Exactly. The judge's definition of the improving the jury deliberation process wasn't a more fair or accurate one. It was a faster one, right? He wanted to re reduce the backlog on his court docket. Now, um, <laughs> the lesson, of course, is that he wants to teach these kids by the kids, these new grownups, these new hires in his company is that it's very important to be clear on your objectives before you start your research project, not after. If you wait till after, you may be sorely disappointed in the result. And now he could just tell them that, right? He could just say, when they wag his finger at him and say, well, you know, my experience in this 20 years in this business tells me you should get very clear on your objectives before you start your project. Well, that would just go in one ear and out the other because it sounds like common sense. But Absolutely. once you've heard the story, right, you can you can feel the angst and remorse and regret that they must have felt when it happened because you know, here they thought it's going to save the world by making you know their little corner of the world in Central Florida a better place to be. But instead, they'd done the opposite. You know, they had made their place in the world a worse, a less just place to be. Probably regretted even taking part in this process, even though I'm sure they got an A on their report card. So. Anyway, once you've heard the story, it's hard to not think about that every time you start a project. But just being told, you know, be clear on your objectives, it just, just never really works. You know what? That was verbalized so well because it's absolutely true. When anyone's speaking, we can say things. There's a real difference between showing and telling, though. And those stories show, give you something for your brain to hold on to, memory you know, story is retained in memory so much better than a fact or a bullet point. And it gives it a form that it can stick and that you can comprehend and understand something. That's why it's the most valuable way to teach. So right. that's really well verbalized. Well, so thank what, you. What now about you, sell with the story? Yeah, yeah. Because you, you already heard one from the parenting book. So the sales one, my favorite one there is something that actually happened to me and my wife. Three years ago, I guess, we were at Coney Island in Cincinnati. And yeah, I know there's a more famous one in New York, but there's actually one in Cincinnati. And, and they actually had a, an art fair going on there one week and where they bring an artist from all over the country. So it's a, a, a high-end juried art fair. Anyway, she was looking for a picture for our son's bathroom at home. And so we were going booth to booth. And we got to this one booth of this uh, underwater photographer, a guy named Chris Goog. And he just takes these mesmerizing pictures of anemones and coral reefs and all kinds of underwater stuff and she's flipping through his pictures and she just gets emotionally attached to this one picture that to me looked about as out of place as a pig in the ocean and the reason Lori was because it literally was a picture of a pig in the ocean okay seriously <laughs> and I just thought that was the craziest thing because you know pigs aren't they're not seafaring creatures they probably don't swim you know so I just thought it was nuts and I finally got my chance to ask the artist a, you know a question so of course I said uh, dude <laughs> What's with the pig in the ocean? And that's when the magic started. He said, I said, yeah, Paul, it was the craziest thing. He said, that picture was taken off the coast of this uninhabited island in the Bahamas called Big Major K. And he said, apparently what happened was a few years earlier, some local entrepreneur decided to raise a pig farm for, for bacon, I guess. 
And he found out there was this uninhabited island where he could just keep the pigs for free. Well, he's no dummy. So he puts them out on this free island, right? And he said, unfortunately, he said, look back in the picture up behind the pig, uh, up on the beach. What do you see there? And I kind of squinted and looked up there and I, I said, uh, well, I don't recognize much of that vegetation. The only thing I recognize is cactus. And he said, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> he said, pigs don't like cactus. He said, literally, there was nothing on the island for them to eat. Okay, so this entrepreneur wasn't so smart after all. He said, well, fortunately, a restaurant owner on a neighboring island every night was boating his kitchen refuse over to Big Major K and dumping it overboard a few dozen yards offshore. So, you know, if you're a hungry little pig and there's nothing to eat, you know, and even though you don't normally swim and certainly don't swim in the ocean, eventually you get hungry enough, you'll do anything, right? So eventually one little pig, dog paddle or pig paddle his, his way out to the ocean to get this food that's floating out there. And, you know, first it's one little pig and then two little pigs and then three little pigs. And he said, you know, here it is three generations later and all the pigs on Big Major K can swim. So I was like, oh, of course, you know, so I'm, I'm like, okay, we'll take it, right? I got my credit card out and I, I said, sold. We'll take the picture right now. Now, ask yourself, why on earth? Because two minutes earlier, that picture was worth nothing to me. It was just some stupid picture of a pig in the ocean that made no sense at all. But two minutes later, I had to have it. And I had to have it because, hey, I just thought it was such a great story. And, and now I'm, I'm not just buying a picture. I'm buying a picture that has a, a story with it, or maybe I'm buying a story that has a picture with it, but I just, I thought it was fascinating. It's like a, a combination of a, a history lesson, a geography lesson, and an animal psychology lesson all kind of rolled into one. I love hearing the story. I love telling the story. If you come to my house and go to the bathroom, you're going to hear the story again because that picture is now in my kid's bathroom, right? <laughs> and, and, and I tell people that artist could have sold us that picture using standard sales techniques, like saying, well, you know, Paul, there's three reasons why you should buy this picture. First of all, it's the right size to fit in your bathroom on the wall where your wife says she wants to hang it. <clears throat> Second of all, it's the right color to match the palette in the bathroom. I've already seen the picture of your the walls and the, the towel, so it'll match the decor. And thirdly, it's in the right price range that you've already said you're willing to spend on the picture today. And those, of course, would be three very logical, rational reasons to buy that picture. But there are probably dozens of pictures at that art fair that met all three criteria. But there's only one that had an interesting story attached to it. And that's why that's the one hanging in the bathroom at home. I'm just so loving that story. It feels very Jonathan yeah. Livingston Siegel-ish. You know, the one pig that branches out to do things differently and all the other pigs are inspired. Yeah, so that's an example of a story. A, uh, there's like 25 different types of sales stories that I talk about in the book. And that's one that adds value to the product that you're selling, where a story can literally add value. And in fact, you, you may have heard of this. There was a, a couple of guys did a, a fascinating project back in 2009. It's uh, Rob Walker and Josh Glenn. They, I think they call it the Significant Objects Project. Have you heard of that? I haven't. Okay, so they went out to all these flea markets and garage sales and bought 100 average everyday boring items. And they spent a total of $129. So on average, $1.29 for these just oh, nothing items. I have, yeah, 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 and yeah. they created a story around each one, right? Yes. And then they sold them all on eBay. So imagine on eBay, it's got, oh, here's a set of salt shakers or, you know, whatever, a nutcracker, whatever, these silly things they bought. But instead of a product description, it had the story that they'd had people write about these objects. And some of them were silly, fanciful, fictional you know, stories, and, but they were all identified as being fictional. So they weren't fooling anybody. But uh, anyway, then they sold them on eBay. And the total money that they got for selling these 100 items was $3,600. 
So the average item went from a dollar and twenty nine cents to I guess what thirty six dollars or so. You know, three thousand percent increase I guess in the value just because it had a story attached to it. So that's kind of what I'm relying on for that that Pig Island story is that stories can literally make the thing that you're selling more valuable because stories are valuable to people. Mm. Love it. Okay, so we are closing in on the end of the program. So are there any final thoughts that you want to share about story, why to use it, the importance, whatever you want? I guess it would be that don't think of storytelling like something that you're either born with or you'll never have. Because I I get that a lot. And I think the best way to describe storytelling is is really like any other art form, like like music or painting or something. Yeah, sure. There are people who are naturally born gifted artists or musicians. I, I get that. And some people are not. But if you're not one of them like me, you could learn, right? So if you wanted to learn to play the guitar, you wouldn't just buy a guitar and sit it by your bed and hope that you got better at it. And you wouldn't just practice either. You'd hire a guitar teacher, right? You'd go to a class, you'd read a book, you'd watch a video, right? Learn from somebody who knows how to do it and you can get decent at it. So now you may never be the greatest storyteller in the world because you're just not born with that natural instinct. But like a musician, like somebody who wants to learn how to play the piano or or how to paint, if you study it, you can learn how to get pretty good at it. So treat it like a skill, like anything else that you want to get good at and go learn about, like I said, buy a book, take a class, whatever, and you can get better. Don't just hope that you get better at storytelling someday or decide that I'm no good at it, so I'm never going to try it. You know, I think one of the things that people bump up against also is they feel like, I don't have any stories. My life's pretty boring. I hear that one a lot. And mm-hmm. the reality is once you help them to start finding what their stories are, and there are, of course, techniques for doing that, they realize that they're living a story, that every day mm-hmm. is a story, and you can help them mine those stories out of their lives. That's a really good point. I think a lot of people make that mistake. They think, I don't have any interesting stories because I don't live an interesting life. And these people who always tell these fascinating stories are people who lead a fascinating life. And I don't think that's true at all. I think those are just the people who were conscious enough to write it down or remember it or share their stories. And once you become aware of the stories that are happening in your life all around you and you kind of capture them and share them with other people, it turns out you're probably living a more interesting life than you realize. Oh, no doubt about it. Right now I'm reading a book by Jack McGuire. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's called The Power of Personal Storytelling. Yeah, yeah, I have. Spinning tales to connect with others. And, you know, part of that really is he talks specifically about finding the things that feel disconnected in your life. Like we make sense of our lives by creating stories around them, which let me ask you this question too. I'll get to in a second here, but... There's this space of the fluidity of story, particularly the fluidity of memory. Like as we create stories about our lives and the things that have happened to us, which we are constantly doing on a daily basis, they're very subjective. They're very subjective to our filters, the way that we've been brought up through our religion, our family, our socioeconomic status, you know, all of those filters that we see through in order to create our realities. And one of the things that he's talking about in the book is how to take something that might feel disconnected and pull the pieces together and create a story around it so that we create meaning around it, that we really do have stories there. But the reason that we don't know them or can't make sense of them is because we haven't actually 
coalesced all the pieces into a story. Mm. So it's not that we don't have stories. It's that we haven't necessarily pieced them together. So it's part of kind of making sense of life. But then my question to you would be, what are your thoughts on the idea? Because story and reality is so subjective of potentially creating story around something that isn't actual factual, you know, and who's going to, what's real anyway. Right. But what, what if you create a story around something in a subjective way that didn't really happen, but that it becomes fact to you because you tell that story over and over. I mean, I, I feel like there's a space there truly for creating meaning in our lives, which is what we use story to do. But I think there's also a little bit of a dangerous space of what if you make something real that wasn't really real? What are your thoughts on yeah. that? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually have a whole chapter in my last book addressing exactly that. How do you guard the integrity of a story? And my general conclusion is that you should properly set your audience's expectation as to the veracity of the story that you're about to tell. So in other words, if you are in a court of law and on the witness stand and have your hand on the Bible and raise your hand and answer a question and tell a story, there's an expectation that everything you say is absolutely true, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you're in a movie theater watching a movie, you have no expectation that what's going on on the screen is real, okay? And there's all kinds of places in between the two. So as long as you set your audience's expectation about how accurate the thing is you're about to tell, I think you're fine. So if you start out a story saying something like, oh, something really crazy happened to me yesterday, it better be what happened to you yesterday because Mm -hmm. it happened to you. It's not a story coming through other people, a bunch of other mouths. It happened to you and it happened yesterday. And you you should have had time to forget it. However, if you say, you know, there's this old story at the company I used to work for that says, and then you tell a story. Well, okay, it's an old story at some company you used to work for. It sounds, it's probably mythological, you know. You've set the expectations that this could have, or if you say, you know, some guy told me one time about this, whatever. (laughs) Okay. It's nothing that happened to you. So by telling them that it came from somebody else who heard it from somebody else, you're lowering their expectations of the veracity of the story. And then I think you have more latitude with what to do with it at that point. That's the main thing. But I also offer some advice on what type of things can you change about a, a story? You, know, can you, you can change the name of the people or exactly where and when it happened you know, to kind of protect the anonymity of people involved. But if you change the lesson from the story or actually the main activity around which the whole story transpired, now you're kind of making stuff up. So I kind of have hard points and soft points that you might want to change. So I kind of conclude that, that section of the book with this acid test to find out if you've changed too much. Imagine that you've just told a story to a group of people and you find out afterwards that one of the people in the audience was actually there when the thing happened that you just told a story about, right? Mm. Now ask yourself these two questions. One, are you embarrassed at how you told the story? And two, would they be offended at how you told the story? And if the answer is yes to either of those questions, you change too much. If the answer is no, they're not offended at all and you're not embarrassed how you told it, you're fine. That's kind of my acid test. Interesting. No, I like that. That's a good filter to run it through. In the book, I was talking about Jack McGuire. He shared the idea of, and I thought this was interesting, of having an un- Uncle Bill that he remembered sporadically. There were pieces and his family had told him how much he looked like this Uncle Bill and had you know similar characteristics and that sort of thing. But he didn't have a lot of interaction with him. So as he was trying to make sense of him later on in his life, he would pull all of these pieces together and then create one story about it to kind of piece it together, which I thought was interesting because it works for him on a personal level to make sense of this relationship and this man that he did and didn't know. On the other level, 
you know, there's really, he's creating a story that wasn't there necessarily. So I think that's an interesting technique. But one of the things he said that I think ties to what we're talking about is he says, quote, I used to think I didn't have many personal stories to tell because I didn't have many clear memories. Now I know it was the other way around. I didn't have many clear memories because I didn't tell many personal stories. Right. I remember that quote from the book. I think I even quoted it in in one of my books. I, I think that's brilliant. So what do you think of that idea of creating a story just out of pieces in order to make sense of it? Do you feel like that's ethical? Certainly, if it's a story you tell yourself, you can tell yourself anything. I think you still owe it to your audience to set the expectations right somehow and ask yourself that question. If you heard him tell that story of Uncle Bill and then you found out later that, you know what, those things didn't really happen or only some of them happened, the rest he made up, would you be offended? Would you feel cheated or lied to? And if the answer is no, because I know I kind of knew that they were just kind of an old tale, old family myths and legends, I, I kind of knew that, then okay, okay, you're fine. But if you came away from the conversation with him every time and hearing these stories and you felt like, oh, I thought these things really happened, I'm kind of mad at him now, well, then that tells you something, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, that actually just reminded me of something that happened many years ago, maybe 25 years ago. It's been a while. In my religious community, one of the clergy that was very well known and highly respected and held a high position, whenever he would speak, he would use stories. And people loved listening to him speak because he would always, you know, keep them captivated and share and illustrate with these great tales. And then it was found out at one point that he had constructed all of these, but he had presented them as if they were, you know, real and actual stories. And boy, did he lose credibility. There was quite a backlash around that. Right. And so the kind of stories I traffic in mostly are stories for leaders and salespeople and and your credibility means everything. So that's why I steer people away from that kind of thing. You know, you, can you take a little more latitude when you're telling an old family story at home with just your kids? Yeah. But again, do you want your kid realizing when they're 35? That, oh, you mean dad made up all that stuff about Uncle Bill? <laughs> Like, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. So again, I would, I set expectations up front. You know, I, there's the whole family kind of legend on Uncle Bill is that blah, blah, blah. And so there you've kind of let them know that maybe not everything is true in the story. Mm-hmm. We have talked about how to teach with a story, how to lead with a story, how to sell with a story. You can do so much, can't you? You can. It's a very versatile tool. (laughs) Thanks for being here today, Paul. I so appreciate our conversation. It's been fun. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. In the Love Your Story motto, the little blurb I do at the beginning of each podcast, I always conclude with story power serves you best when you know how to use it. My conversation with Paul today has been about how to use story in so many aspects of our lives, professionally, as parents, how to lead in any type of a leadership situation. And it just really brings home the idea of the power of story. And once you know how to use it, how effective you can be, how influential you can be. Thank you for being here today with me on the Love Your Story podcast and for this conversation with this very influential and experienced story leader. So what are your stories? Your challenge this week is to think about maybe one thing 
or one conversation that needs to happen or one relationship. Maybe you're teaching your kids something or wanting to teach them something, or maybe there's a space at work where you need to lead out. I don't know what that is in your life, but think about one of those spaces right now and then think about find, maybe you search, maybe you talk to other people about it, but do just a little bit of research and find a story that you can use to address that topic. And while it might seem like, oh, that's a lot to come up with or, you know, add one more thing to my list of things to do, really what it is, is just you jumping off the diving board of learning how to use story. And the more you do it, and the more that's your go-to space, the more effective you'll be, and the more natural it will become. Paul's books, Lead with the Story, Sell with the Story, and Parenting with the Story, as I mentioned, I'll have links to them on the show notes on loveyourstorypodcast.com. And all of those books are full of story after story after story. That's what the books are created for. So feel free to grab a copy of those books, read them, and then you have stories at the ready. But again, your challenge this week, find a space in your life where you need to teach or lead or parent and find a story that you can use there and test it out. See how it works for you. Thank you for being here. And we'll see you next week on the Love Your Story podcast. Mm-hmm.